Hey everyone, welcome back to it here in Apologetics. I'm so excited that you're joining us today to have Andrew Horanich. Uh, he described himself as a simple man just trying to make his way in the universe. Uh, today we're going to be talking about the question of universalism and specifically responding to a clip um, from Captain Christianity titled Dr. William Craig, William, Dr. William Lane Craig refutes universalism. Uh, Andrew, what's up? How you doing? Uh, yeah, not much. I'll just say this video just totally devastated me. I mean, here's a a book I wrote on Christian universalism, but once I saw that like couple minute clip, man, it was just all over for me. Not just just kidding, but I think we'll have a fun time looking at this uh, clip from Dr. Craig. Yeah, how's that making your way around the universe going? You've been on the podcast before, and we've <laughs> talked about um, you're kind of making your name in like the universalism debate. Uh, how's life been since the last time we talked? Uh, it's been good. Yeah, I think I've come to have the nickname from some Hellboy. Uh, I don't know how I feel about that. I'm like, well, I'm a universalist. Is that really the term that you want to use to describe me? Um, but I do have a forthcoming debate on Premier Unbelievable that um, is going to be recorded this Monday. I'm not sure when it will release, but I'm doing a lot of prep for that right now. So for all those out there, if you well, by the time they probably see this video, um, the debate will have already been recorded. But uh, pray for me anyway. You never know um, how things might work out. Well, Andrew, what we're going to do today is, is we're going to break down this short clip um, from Capturing, Capturing Christianity. We'll leave a link down to this full clip below, even though we're going to play the full clip even in this podcast. Um, Andrew's just going to tell me when to pause. I told him if he wants to scream at me, it'd be like, Zach, pause the freaking computer. I'm like, or the video. I'll be like, all right, I got you. Um, but yeah, Andrew, do you want to say anything preliminary before we get rolling here? Um. Just that it's interesting. This discussion with Dr. Craig was shortly after I actually appeared on Capturing Christianity. So I wonder when I saw this clip if um, perhaps Cameron had me or my presentation in mind when he asked Dr. Craig this question. I, I could be wrong, but I uh, suspect that he did have that in mind. So that's just a, a little side note, little plug if people want to go check out the interviews I've done on Capturing Christianity. Awesome. Well, let's dive into this clip. On the topic of universalism, what do you make of the argument that says that eventually uh, any rational creature is going to eventually repent and come to see that they're they're rebelling against God and that's not something that that benefits them. What what is your response to this argument for for that you see from universalists that eventually hell will yeah. be emptied and everyone will eventually come to their senses if it takes millions or trillions of years? It just seems very very likely that eventually hell will be emptied completely. What is your response to this? I, I am a biblical theist, Cameron, uh, who uh, always consults what the Bible says about these things. And such a view is patently contra contradictory to biblical teaching, which says that when the goats and the sheep are separated, the sheep go away into eternal life and the goats go away into eternal punishment. Uh, and the word for eternal is the same in both cases. So uh, it is simply unbiblical to say that eventually hell will be emptied and everyone will be saved. Okay, Moreover, there, this Zach. is a doc. So um, there's a lot to say there. So the first thing is, I remember reading an article by Thomas Talbot, who's a very prominent uh, Christian universalist. He wrote a book called The Inescapable Love of God. And in one of his articles, he described uh, different sorts of theism. And one sort of theism he described as biblical theism. He said that the Christian universalist is a biblical theist. So, again, I'm wondering if when Dr. Craig described himself as a biblical theist, did he have Thomas Talbot in mind in that article? Uh, because Thomas Talbot, he might have even in that article uh, commented on Dr. Craig's work. Uh, I know he does elsewhere, and Dr. Craig has responded to Thomas Talbot. So I wouldn't be surprised at all 
if that's why Dr. Craig says that he's a biblical theist. Um, only other thing that I add is, so he's a biblical theist. I mean, what's the implication for Christian Universalists? I mean, are they Harry Potter theists? Like, uh, yes, you know, the, the traditionalists, yeah, they're biblical theists. But but here as Christian Universalists, uh, we like to exegete Harry Potter. Um, I don't think that's how they think of themselves, right? But um, so, for example, Christian Universalists, there are plenty of scriptures that Dr. Craig never mentions that they will bring up and say, well, it just seems like these passages on their face seem to teach that eventually all will be saved. So if I could read some of these for you, um, you have Romans 5, 18 through 19. So then, just as through one transgression came condemnation for all human beings, so also through one act of righteousness came a rectification of life for all human beings. For just as by the heedlessness of the one man, the many were rendered sinners, so also by the obedience of the one, the many will be rendered righteous. Another one, 1 Corinthians 15, 22. For just as in Adam all die, so also in the anointed all will be given life. 2 Corinthians 5.14, for the love of the anointed constrains us, having reached this judgment, that one died on behalf of all, all then have died. Romans 11.32, for God shut up everyone in obstinacy, that he might show mercy to all. Titus 2.11, for the grace of God has appeared, giving salvation to all human beings. Ephesians 1.9-10, making known to us the mystery of his will, which was his purpose in him for a husbandry of the season's fullness, to recapitulate all things in the anointed, the things in the heavens, and the things on earth. Colossians 1, 27 through 28. By whom God wished to make known what the wealth of this mysterious glory is among the Gentiles, which is the anointed within you, the hope of glory, whom we proclaim, warning every human being and teaching every human being in all wisdom, so that we may present every human being as perfected in the anointed. John 12, 32. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will drag everyone to me. Um, John 17, 2. Just as you gave him power over all flesh, so that you have given everything to him, that he might give them life in the age. Second um, Peter 3, 9, that's also an interesting one. The Lord is not delaying what is promised, as some reckon delay, but is magnanimous toward you, intending for none to perish, but rather for all to advance to a change of heart. Philippians 2, 9 through 11, for which reason God also exalted him on high and graced him with the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bend, of beings heavenly and earthly and subterranean, and every tongue gladly confess that Jesus the anointed is Lord for the glory of God the Father. Colossians 1, 19-20, For in him all the fullness was pleased to take up a dwelling, and through him to reconcile to himself all things to him, making peace by the blood of his cross through him, whether the things on the earth or the things in the heavens. Luke 16, 16, Until John there were the law and the prophets, since then the good tidings of God's kingdom are being proclaimed, and everyone is being forced into it. 1 Timothy 4.10, we have hoped in a living God who is the Savior of all human beings, especially those who have faith. Now, I, I could keep on going on, but I'm just trying to make the point that Christian universalists are going to look at texts like that and saying, we're not exegeting Harry Potter. We are exegeting the scripture. And we, when we look at the scripture, we seem to find numerous texts that speak um, to everyone eventually being saved. So I don't think it's fair of Dr. Craig to just describe himself as a biblical theist and seemingly painting others as really not biblical theists. Um, the other thing is, so he gives one proof text, right? The sheep and goats, Matthew 25, 46. Um, right, so this is a popular one, and he gives a popular argument in support of his traditionalist view, which goes back to Augustine. Maybe you find it in Basil of Caesarea. You also find it in Moses um, Stuart. Uh, it's the idea that, well, the same word eternal is being used to describe both the life and the punishment, right? So first things, what I want you to uh, what I want to do for listeners is I want to read three different translations of this verse, okay? Matthew 25, 46. The King James Version says, 
and these shall go away into everlasting punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Okay, that's the KJV. Um, Young's literal translation says, and these shall go away to punishment age enduring, but the righteous to life age enduring. David Bentley Hart's New Testament translation says, and these will go to the chastening of that age, but the just to the life of that age. Now, why do they have different readings of this passage, right? What is going on here? Well, I think that it's helpful to look at somebody like Dale Allison, who in Night Comes, he talks about um, the noun form of the Greek adjective that's being used here, the noun form ion and a Semitic equivalence, as well as the adjectival form of ion that's being used here, namely ionios. And Dale Allison says that the word um, ion in its equivalence and even in its uh, Greek literature does not have to mean, or in many cases, does not mean forever. And so I wrote down a bunch of examples that Allison gives in this book of Semitic equivalence to ion and ionios that one finds in intertestamental, uh, intertestamental literature and biblical literature to make the point that the word does not have to mean forever in noun form or adjectival form. So you have, for example, 1 Maccabees 1441, and the Jews and their priests decided that Simon should be their leader and high priest forever until a trustworthy prophet should arise. Okay, so he should be their priest forever or until, you know, another trustworthy president should arrive. I mean, which one is it? Um, you have, they were bound in the earth forever until the day of great judgment, according to Jubilees 510. So they were bound in the earth forever, but only until the, the day of judgment. Okay. Um, 2 Baruch 40, verse 3, and his domain, being the Messiah's, will last forever until the world of corruption has ended and until the times which have been mentioned before have been fulfilled. So it's going to last forever, but until here. right? So, so you're noticing a pattern that Alice and many others say is that um, perhaps it's better to understand um, the noun as referring to a limited duration, but a long one, perhaps. And the adjectival form is referring to a long period of time, but not necessarily an eternal one. Others, though, they don't think that the adjective at all, Ionios, refers to how long something is, but necessarily to the quantity of something, but to its quality. All right. Um, so you have people like John Wenham and Cam Pape Oinoyo and N.T. Wright, who all think that the word is referring to the quality of something, namely pertaining to the age to come. So N.T. Wright, for example, states, quote, Ionion released to the Greek ion, which often roughly translates the Hebrew olam. Some Jews thought of there being two ages, the present age and the age to come. Ionian punishment and the like would be punishment in the age to come. So, right? so he's defining as quality, not duration. It's the punishment that's in the age to come. Um, in Facing Hell, John Wenham says, quote, It would be proper to translate punishment of the age to come and life of the age to come, which would leave open the question of duration. Uh, as I... I'm going to butcher this guy's name, Kim Papayonoyo. Uh, I, I don't know how to pronounce that last name. I'm sorry. But he states in the Geography of Hell on page 47, quote, It is therefore likely that in the New Testament, the adjective Ionios goes beyond the quantitative sense of a period of time to imply a quality to be associated with the age to come, the age that God will set up. Uh, Marcus Borg from the Jesus Seminar also thinks that this is referring to the quality of something, namely pertaining to the age to come. Um, David Powell's in his book, How a Hard Look at a Hard Question. He is a traditionalist, not an annihilationist and not a universalist. David Powell says, quote, the general primacy of the qualitative sense of Ionion in New Testament usage is universally acknowledged. Seen as such, it expresses the quality 
of the promised age, the age of the kingdom of God. This, rather than the duration of the kingdom, is the primacy, primary stress with the word Ionios. So, in other words, what these scholars are saying is that Ionios refers to that which pertains to the age to come. And, and so, in other words, this is the punishment of the age to come, and this is the life of the age to come. It's not saying anything about its duration. It's talking about its quality. So, um, just because both activities occur in the age to come does not mean that they'll therefore be the same duration. For example, tomorrow I will have breakfast, okay? And tomorrow I will go to work. Both activities occur tomorrow. They occur, right? I'm telling you when they occur. But I have not told you how long those activities occur. And I really hope that my work <laughs> for the sake of paying bills will be longer than how long I eat breakfast, right? So that's something that a universalist would simply say. That's something that traditionalists have said, annihilationists said, and universalists have said is that the word does not refer to duration of time in this sense. The word refers to quality, namely pertaining to the age to come. Um, and so you could still ask, okay, well, but do we have any evidence elsewhere that the life of the age to come will be eternal? Yes, we do. In 1 Corinthians 15, we're told that death will die, right? There's going to be a resurrection, then death will die. Well, if, if death will die after you've been raised, then you can't die again, right? Uh, we're told that we're going to be raised immortal, imperishable, incorruptible. That's strong language that's being used. So I think we have good grounds to say the life of the age to come, right, that will be experienced by believers will be of infinite duration. But I don't think we can say the same about the punishment of the age to come. Um, so that's that's a lot on that. One other thing that I'll add is that the word that is being used for goats in that passage, I think it's Erephon, um, it has about 100 occurrences in um, other Greek literature that I'm familiar with. And it often means young goat. So in the parable of the, um, the prodigal son, the older brother, for example, he points out to his father that his father hasn't even given him a young goat, right, to share with his friends. And so there have been some scholars who have looked at that usage of young goat, and they say, you know what's being contrasted in Matthew 25 is immature goats with mature sheep, right? Immature folks with mature folks. And if you actually read the parable, um, there could be a sense in which you could read that, somehow attempted to make the case. Another thing to point out is the debate over the term colossus right, um, with the noun form that's being used here, that means punishment. If you read Clement of Alexandria, if you read Plato, they think that the term refers to remedial punishment. Now, the term also does have uh, retributive connotations that you'll find in one of the book of Maccabees, right? So um, sometimes it refers to horticultural terminology, like the pruning of a plant. So you prune something so that it, it grows back, right? And so some people saw this as referring, um, if it referred to uh, remedial usage when it came to plants, then it should also be used for remedial purposes when it's attributed to persons, right? But it's, it's highly complex. Um, so all that to say, I could go on, <laughs> plenty of notes on this. All that to say, that just simply citing Matthew 25, 46 and claiming to be a, a biblical theist isn't going to do it. In fact, I think there are better passages you could have cited, but I hope that's informative to listeners. Yeah, I think it helped make clear, like, like coming from your perspective, Andrew, like when we read like uh, the sheep and the goats and think about eternal punishment and eternal life, um, even like the distinction you brought up, Andrew, where you're saying, hey, like that doesn't necessarily mean that the durations are the same because um, it's something that at least I know I assume a lot when I just read the passage. Um, so, yeah, thank you. Well, can, can I add something? Because actually this might be mm -hmm. uh, interesting to readers. So Origen, right, who many people would say is uh, among the greatest exegetes of the early church, and he was a native Greek speaker. Um, he said this in one of his homilies. He says, whenever scripture says from ion to ion, the reference is to an interval of time, and it is clear that it will have an end. And if scripture says in another ion, 
What is indicated is clearly a longer time, and yet an end is still fixed. And when the ions of the ions are mentioned, a certain limit is again posited, perhaps unknown to us, but surely established by God. Right? This was a homily on Exodus 6.13. What's interesting is that um, 300 years after Origen, after his death, Emperor Justinian, right, he commanded Menas, Patriarch of Constantinople, to convene a synod to condemn Origen. And in the edict from that council, it was affirmed that, quote, the Holy Church of Christ teaches an endless Ionian life for the righteous and an endless punishment of the wicked. Now, what's interesting here is that in this quotation, there are different words, different words being used to describe the punishment in the life. And this is probably because there was so much debate over what that term meant, Ionian, Ionian, that in order to just end all debate, in order to make it perfectly clear what side Justinian landed on, he made sure that the term that was being used could be beyond dispute. And so he used a completely different term than what we find in Matthew 25, 46. I find that very interesting. I also find very interesting that the Neoplatonic philosopher, uh, Olympiodorus, who was a contemporary of Justinian's, he said, quote, do not suppose that the soul is punished for an endless ages. He's using different words that we have in Matthew 25, 46 in Tartarus. Very properly, the soul is not punished to gratify the revenge of the divinity, but for the sake of healing. But we say that the soul is punished for an Ionian period, calling its life, and it's a lot of period of punishment, it's Aeon. Okay, this is a neo Neoplatonic philosopher who is quite comfortable using language of Ionian punishment that still terminates in the healing of that soul. That should tell you something. So um, the last thing that I'll add is that what's really interesting is that uh, Jerome, who is the author of the Latin Vulgate, when he was translating the Bible into Latin, he solidified the notion of everlastingness behind the punishment. So he, he uses the word, I think I have it here, eternum, right, which we translate into English as eternal. And so it, given that many people were reading Latin Vulgates and centuries after um, Jerome's composition, it's kind of understandable why certain people thought they read Matthew 25, 46, and they thought, oh, eternal, because they weren't native Greek speakers. They're simply reading the Latin. So those are all things for people to keep in mind. All right. That's really helpful. Thank you, Andrew. Uh, let's keep going with the clip. And again, just tell me when you want me to pause again. Doctrine that is condemned by the church. The uh, early church condemned the church father, Oregon, for his doctrine of apocatastasis which is the restoration of all things. He thought that even Satan and the demons would eventually be saved and reconciled to God. And the church, I think, quite rightly uh, contemned, condemned this view as unbiblical. Okay, I would say more where there's no good reason to think that this is true. Sorry, I was on the struggle bus with trying to pause it, but yeah. No, you're, you're fine. Um, so, so I have many problems with this. First of all, there's a um, large treatment of this by, um, by Dr. Father Kimmel. Um, you can find it on his blog. You can also find it in his book, Destined for Joy, where he goes into length on what Dr. Craig is describing, the Fifth Ecumenical Council. But uh, first things first, there, there are a few things that I say because Dr. Craig is a Protestant. Now, Dr. Craig has been accused by Roman Catholics in particular of being himself uh, not, not a heretic, but heretical in his teachings uh, regarding Christology and Trinitarianism, because they say that this goes against certain creeds and certain councils. So I find it really interesting that um, he can stomach that, but then he turns around against the Universalist and says, well, you're going against the council. 
The other thing is that Gavin Ortland, who's very popular now on YouTube, uh, he runs a channel called Truth Unites. He explicitly, explicitly goes against one of the church councils, namely Nicaea too, right? So I, I wonder if Dr. Craig has a problem with that, uh, that, that Dr. Gavin at Ortland disagrees with Nicaea too. Is that a problem? The other thing is, um, yeah, this sort of argument isn't going to fly today amongst many feminist and liberation theologians. I remember being in a classroom and uh, we were talking about the council. We were, well, we were talking about theology and the councils came up and I said, well, you know, the councils are healthy guideline. And some, um, one of the girls made a comment or young ladies, I should say um, that, oh yeah, a bunch of white men got together and then they told us what to do. Now, some people, some people may, may, uh, they, they may take onus with that, but it is interesting. I mean, uh, where is the female representation at these councils? Where is it? Uh, oh, well, they influence the people who are present. Where were the females? Um, where were the Native Americans? Where were the South Americans? Yeah, uh, where were the Japanese? Where were the Chinese? Where were the New Zealand? <laughs> There's so much lack of representation at these councils, uh, which is why many Protestants, especially feminist theologians, will take onus with the idea that, oh, yeah, centuries ago, a bunch of um, a bunch of men got together and told us what to do. That's not going to fly with many people today. It just won't. I, I know that you're going to have listeners, Catholic listeners, Eastern Orthodox listeners, and even some Protestant listeners who will take onus with that. I would just say go and read feminist theologians and what they have to say about these councils. Okay? So that those are two things to start with. One, look at Gavin Ortland. Okay? Do you think that what Gavin Ortland is doing is okay, Dr. Craig? Uh, right in rejecting Nicaea too. And if Dr. Um, Gavin Ortland can reject Nicaea too, then why can't universalists, if even the council did condemn universal and full stop, why can't they reject that council? Um, are, isn't our, for many Protestants, they hold to solo scriptura, isn't scripture, right? The norming norm. Um, that's neither here nor there. The big thing, thing is I just think he's flat out wrong, okay? Um, so I'm glad to see that Origen is making a revival, especially in North American theological circles, where it's almost a, it's almost a joke because he's almost the patron saint of the seminary that I go to. Origen is loved at Princeton Theological Seminary, loved, and, but not just at Princeton. I remember being at Liberty and certain people um, who were beginning to read his On First Principles, like, whoa, this guy is pretty cool. So Origen is awesome. And as David Bentley Hart said, if Origen was not a father, then the church has no fathers. But it's good to see that he's making a comeback. Um, the other thing to mention is it's interesting how he said that Origen's view of apocatastasis was condemned. And I would say, okay, well, um, this is really complex because one could simply say, yeah, but I don't hold Origen's view of apocatastasis, right? I hold uh, a Balthazarian view. I hold Greg Nisa's view. I hold George MacDonald's view. I hold, right? So if it was just Origen's view that was condemned, his specific view of universalism, so freaking what? So what? I have a book right here called Varieties of Christian Universalism, uh, which makes the point that Richard Bauckham made decades ago. The one thing that Christian universalists hold in common is that eventually all will be saved. But there's completely different explanations as to how that reconciliation is brought about. So who cares if it was simply Origen's view? Now, the question is, was it uh, apocatastasis full stop that was condemned, not simply Origen's view? Um, so that's a more 
interesting question, and I think that the, um, the answer is no. Uh, Bishop Barron is somebody. He's a, a, a Catholic, well-known Catholic, who he's a Balthazarian sort of universalist, who he thinks that what the council was condemning was a necessary form of universalism, or it was called strong or hard universalism, but that hopeful universalism, contingent universalism was not condemned. And there are other Catholics who agree with Bishop Barron on this, right? So then if that's the case, then certain variants of Molinist universalism or certain variants of other uh, Arminian forms of universalism cannot be ruled out. Um, so that's one reading of it, uh, of the councils. Um, another is that we need to look at the condemnation. Dr. Craig is probably thinking of one of the condemnations uh, that the council gives in context. And in context, it seems to be referring to a view of apocatosis that believes in the pre-existence of souls, right? So a form of apocatosis that believed that souls pre-existed their mortal state seems to be what's condemned at this council, right? And so if, if that's the form of universalism being condemned, well, I don't know many universalists who actually hold that view. And I would furthermore say that it does seem like Origen became a whipping boy in the early church. Like we need to blame somebody for what all these origins are saying. So we're going to blame Origen. When even Origen himself in his own lifetime complained about interpolations in his own works that are being attributed to him, as Alaria Ramelli and others have shown that um, Origen, many things that were ascribed to him, he did not write. He did not say, John Bear, go read John Bear and what he has to say about Origen and the lies and the smears that put him. I mean, I remember being taught in classical school that Origen castrated himself because of a certain reading of Matthew. I think it was Matthew 19. And John Bear makes very clear and persuasive that that was a stinking lie that was attributed to Origen in order to smear him. He did not castrate himself, which makes sense given the allegorical hermeneutic that Origen is so well known for using. I mean, it would be really odd that he would use the allegorical hermeneutic on everything else except that passage where it says, talking about um, eunuchs for the kingdom of heaven. That's extremely odd. And so I was glad to read that in uh, Father John Bear. So when it comes to Origen's view of preexistence, there's so many different readings of what he's saying. Are, is he, does Origen even believe in the preexistence of souls? If he does, does he say they preexist in God's foreknowledge? Does he say that they preexist as in a disembodied state? Does he say that they preexist in, in spiritual bodies? So many debates. Right? So this is highly complex. So what I can tell readers to do, if, if they're really interested in what the council has to say, I have a portion of it in my book, Once Loved, Always Loved. You can go check out Alvin Kimmel's book, Destined for Joy, and his article online. All right? So I'll just leave it there. Well, let's keep going with this clip. Thank you, Andrew, for that. There's no good reason to think that this is true. I think it underestimates Cameron. Okay, can you just stop and there? I really can you mean stop this. There? It under um, so there's no good reason to think that this is true. Um, right. I just read to you, I don't know how many scriptural passages, okay, that people think give good reason to think that this is true. Other people like um, Catherine Rogers, when they examine perfect being theology, it's interesting that at the end of her book, she has a single paragraph to hell. And she says, you know, it's, if hell is incompatible with perfect being theism, then, you know, the traditional view of hell, then that's got to go. But whether or not it's incompatible is, is beyond the scope of this book, right? Uh, so many people have picked up the torch where she left off and said perfect being theism is absolutely incompatible with the traditional doctrine of hell. So um, if you read God's Final Victory by Eric Raytan and John Cronin, if you read Thomas Talbot's The Inescapable Love of God, if you read uh, David Bentley Hart's That All Shall Be Saved, they make exactly this case, right? So they think that there is good reason to believe in perfect being theism, 
And if perfect being theism is inconsistent with the traditional doctrine of hell, then there's good reason to think that the traditional doctrine of hell is false, right? So you have scriptural arguments that seem to give good reason for believing in universalism. You have um, early witness in the church father that seems to give good reason for believing in Christian universalism. You have tremendous philosophical theological arguments that are being proffered today by people like Dustin Crummett and uh, David Bentley Hart and uh, Robin Parry and Tom Greggs, and um, even a friend of Dr. Craig's, um, Josh Rasmussen. I'm so, I am wonder if Dr. Uh, Dr. Craig has talked with Joshua Rasmussen on this, because Joshua Rasmussen, he wrote a book, I think it was called When Heaven Invades Hell, right? It was a novel form of his view of Christian universalism. So no, I think there is very good reason. Another would probably be through mystics, right? Like Julian of Norwich, through religious experiences. I remember talking to Dale Allison, who Again, uh, in Night Comes and other books, he talks about different sorts of religious experiences. And Dale Allison thinks that um, due to a religious experience that he had early on in life, that he has good reason for thinking that all shall be well, right? He, he reasons, he's reasoning from experience. Um, now, some people might denigrate reasoning from experience, but, you know, you have to make that case. So, again, I'll just leave it at that. underestimates the degree of hatred on the part of the damned toward God. I suspect that rather than feel sorry that they are in hell and that God is punishing them and they wish they hadn't done it, I suspect that the damned in hell grow even more implacable in their hatred of God for treating them this way and in their intransigence against him, so that even if God were to let them out, they would not repent and bow the knee to him. The French existentialist Jean-Paul Sartre put it very aptly when he said, the door to hell is locked from the inside. Hello. Yeah. So That part, but yeah. What do you think, Andrew? So, yeah, so... Uh, I find what's interesting, uh, what's really interesting is the last part where he talks about that even if they were let out, right, they they wouldn't want to be in heaven. So mm -hmm. um, he might be thinking of C.S. Lewis's The Great Divorce, where C.S. Lewis is talking about what you find in the early church, um, a time of respite. So there were early Christians who thought that, you know, the damned in hell, they get Sundays off and they get great feast days off, right? So the, the tormenting, the punishing, it ceases on those days. They get a time of respite. Oh, God is so gracious. Uh, so uh, in C.S. Lewis's book, The Great Divorce, he picks up on that theme of respite and he, he makes it like a like a like a, a weekend on a bus where you can go from hell to heaven and some of the occupants, they want to stay in heaven. Some don't. Right. So uh, maybe maybe that's what he's thinking of is the respite that you find in the early church and that you find in C.S. Lewis's book. Um, right. So he said something. I don't know if it was in the clip that we watched. It might have been before when we cut him off. But um, this happens with many universal. We get told, oh, you just have a low view of sin. Just have a low view of sin. So I want to read to you this passage from L. Hanan Winchester in The Restitution of All Things Defended, pages 35 through 36. This is what he says. I conclude that let sin be ever so great, the grace of God is greater. And if you will have it that sin is of infinite magnitude, I hope you will not deny the propitiation of Jesus Christ, which he made for all sins, the same character. Therefore, if you magnify sin and insist upon the greatness of its demerit, I will endeavor to magnify the all-powerful Redeemer above it and speak of his power to redeem all the human race 
for whom he shed his blood. In other words, um, universalists do not hold a low view of sin. They hold a high view of grace. It took God the Son's death, right, to solve our sin problem, to reconcile us to himself. That is not cheap grace, right? And as I make the case in my book, there is still hell to pay. So, no, universalists do not have a lower view of sin. Um, as the Apostle Paul would say, where sin abounds, grace abounds more or much more. And the universalist says that, amen. This has nothing to do with a low view of sin. This has to do with a high view of grace. You can make sin however bad you want, Zach. Make it however bad you want. And all we're saying is, his grace is greater. Yeah, but sin's really bad. His grace is greater. But sin is really captivating. His grace is greater. But sin really gets away. His grace is greater. His grace is greater. Um, so, yeah, so then he, he says that, well, I think that in hell, they become more intransient in their sin. They become, hey, God, guess what? I agree. All right, I agree that they go on to hate God even more. But I don't think that they stay like that forever. So what he's probably getting at is the idea of self-deception. And there was a great article uh, that was recently written. Um, oh, I wonder if the guy's last name was Hart. I can't remember. I reached out to him. It's a tremendous article. And he made the case that if it's true that the doors of hell are locked from the inside— then in a matter of time, eventually all will get out, right? So not all traditionalists or annihilationists believe that it's true that the gates of hell are locked from the inside. So he's just making the case that if you hold that belief, then you should be universalist. And I think that the article that um, he writes is very compelling. He talks about transformative experiences, right? Which they bring about um, a different way of seeing things and a different way of living out things, okay? So transformative experiences can be positive and negative. Transformative experience can be something like the Damascus experience of the Apostle Paul. Um, you see this in romance novels where you have an extrovert who meets this bubbly character, and all of a sudden the extrovert becomes an introvert and an outgoing person. Um, you see in Christmas Carol, one of the most famous examples perhaps of a transformative experience. Ebenezer Scrooge, right, he's turned from this callous old man into somebody who's a lovely old chap by the end of the book, by this transformative experience. So Joshua Rasmussen has made the case in a recent essay that perhaps God can bring about transformative experiences in the lives of the damned. Um, we seem to see this in the life of Nebuchadnezzar, right? where Nebuchadnezzar, he's looking out on Babylon that he, he says, credit said to himself, that he has made. And what does God say? Eat do, right? He reduces him. There's almost animalistic-like state. But at the end of it all, it says that Nebuchadnezzar, that his um his senses like return to him, that he extols the God of Hegdom, that his throne is returned to him, and he says, you know, God is sovereign above it all, God is sovereign above all the peoples of the earth. They're counted as nothing, for he does as he pleases. Right? Transformative experience. Look at what it did to King Nebuchadnezzar, a horrible individual. Right? Um, so the point is that God, God's greater than Sherlock Holmes. Okay, I just got finished watching. The Sherlock Holmes films. God's also greater than Michael from The Good Place. Okay, if you've ever watched that show too. God is infinitely resourceful. He's infinitely patient. And he's infinitely wise. He knows what to say and when to say it. What not to say and when not to say it. <laughs> um, so it's just the idea that given time, eventually all will come. Because sometimes there are some deceptions that are rooted so deep that it takes time for them to be removed. I think a good example is um, from Harry Potter. Have you ever read or watched Harry Potter, Zach? I have not, but it's high on my book list and my watch list, so I'm getting there. 
uh, is going to be on the final exam at the Day of Judgment, so you better better read and watch. No, but but in Harry Potter, you have uh, the family known as the Dursleys, who are taking care of Harry Potter. I don't want to give too much spoilers to Zach, but but they're kind of annoying. And they're in the books especially, they're constantly trying to tell themselves, try to reassure themselves, that these magic folk, they're just a bunch of like vagabonds and weirdos. So you'll have uh, Uncle Dursley, right? He'll um, he'll see it. I think it's Vernon Dursley. He'll see these people wearing these funny robes. And he'll just think, oh, you know, there's like a, a comic con going on or anything. So he ke- continually tries to reinforce the belief that, you know, magic isn't real, that these magic folk aren't real, that there's something else. But it all comes crashing down by the time you get to the last books. It all comes crashing down. It cannot be sustained. If you have the delusion that you are a good skier when in fact you're not, do you know what might break that illusion? A broken leg might do the trick, right? So yes, self-deception can run deep. And sometimes it takes a long time to get rid of that self-deception. But I think if you read the literature, there are plenty of examples of how self-deception can be rooted out. Transformative experience may be one such example of how self-deception can be rooted out. So I agree with Dr. Craig. Yes, it's more than likely that those in hell, that they grit their teeth and over time they become more and more angry with God. I'm just saying that eventually that will cease. That eventually all shall be well and all manner of things shall be well. So I got to say, if this is Dr. Craig's case against universalism that he can sum up in five minutes, well, it's pretty lackluster. And I'll say in his defense, Dr. Craig is brilliant. Dr. Craig is a busy, busy man. And so I'm assuming that, to give him the benefit of the doubt, he hasn't really read that much of the literature concerning the debate over universalism. It just seems like the fact that he was unfamiliar with universalist responses to Matthew 25, 46, when I went in death on that and Captain Christianity, so it seems like other not that he would watch anything like that, but that the fact that on the same channel, I would spend all that time going into how that's a terrible argument to make. And then he uses that same argument on that same channel without acknowledging um, rebuttals such as the ones that I presented is to me kind of astonishing. Um, so he often chastises other people for not doing their homework. And what I have to say is a snarky way, right? Like um, at my school, at, at my seminary in Princeton, not many people know who Dr. Craig is, right? They're not interested in apologetics. In fact, the word apologetics is a dirty word. It's, it's only it's only brought up to denigrate, especially by Dale Allison. He can't stand apologetics um, as it's popularly referred to. Um, and so Dr. Craig, he isn't well-known, but amongst those who do know Dr. Craig, a lot of people are turned off because they think he's kind of snarky, right? And I love Dr. Craig. I just wish that he would tone down his snarkiness. And if he's going to tell people to do their homework on certain things, then I'm just going to have to tell him, you have to do your homework, Dr. Craig. It seems like you're just blissfully unaware of what Christian universalists have been saying for decades. So to listeners, I want to make it clear. I love Dr. Craig, but from that clip, it's embarrassing how unaware he is of Christian universalist rebuttals to statements that he was making. Well, Andrew, thank you so much for coming on today. I really appreciate your insight. And there's always so much that I can like take from you just listening and observing to what you're saying. Is there anything else you want to say? First off, like share any last thoughts. And then two, like how can people like follow you, connect with you, see what you're up to um, as you continue uh, with what you're doing? Yeah, so people can probably stay in touch and see updates on um, Facebook and Instagram. Uh, you can find it at A-M-H-R-O-N-I-C-H. So just A-M in my last name. I should pop up. And I post regular updates to people about things that I'm thinking about or debates that I'm having or interviews that I've just had. 
um, especially the premiere Unbelievable one. I'll be keeping people in touch once that has been recorded and once that has been put out there. I really hope that people enjoy it. I've been studying very hard to make this debate engaging. If people don't know already, Sean McDowell is going to be the host. And um, I love Sean. My mom loves Sean, right? And I know that the Bible says that the way to the father is through the son, but the way to a Haranish boy is through the Haranish mother, right? So the fact that my mom loves Sean McDowell means that I have to love him too, right? So I'm very looking forward to having him as the host. I think we'll have a great conversation. And um, if I could say words of encouragement, I guess, to listeners, um, I guess um, I've really loved the epilogue to my book. Uh, with that, the whole, it comes down to the idea of beauty and truth being intertwined. Just, just think for a moment. Is the view that Dr. Craig is presenting, is that beautiful? And if, be- if beauty is an indication of truth and the vision that Dr. Craig is presenting is hideous, that's probably an indication that his view is just not true. Remember those questions we had from Samwise Gamgee. Are all sad things coming untrue? Dr. Craig cannot say yes. I can. I can, from my vantage point, say that yes, at the end of all things, all sad things will come untrue. Beauty is intertwined with truth. His view is utterly hideous. That's a good sign that his view, therefore, cannot be what's true. I'll just leave it at that. Uh, Andrew, thank you so much for coming on. Can you repeat what you just said? Because he might have lost you there at the last, at the literally the last moment there as you were just finishing your <laughs> sentence. I'm trying to reinforce it. If beauty is an indication of truth and the alternative hypothesis is hideous, that's a good indication that the alternative hypothesis is not true. Well, thank you. That's great. And I'll have to go back and like listen to that. But part of me doesn't even want to edit anything, um, if that's the case. Uh, we'll see what happens. Andrew, thank you so much for coming on today. I really appreciate you and everything you're doing. Um, it's awesome to see just where you're going. Um, I'd encourage people to check and fo- check out and follow Andrew. I'll leave some links down below. Uh, and if you're new to here on Projects, I encourage you to like, subscribe, all that fun stuff. And that's that, everyone. Thank you so much for coming on today. Have a good one. Uh, Andrew, one last time, thank you so much for coming on today. I really appreciated this. Thank you for having me, Zach. I hope everyone has a good one and God bless. We'll catch you next time.